Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, March 26th, and this is the weekly market update. You are all familiar with the disclaimer. Anything that you hear or see on this podcast or video is not to be taken as investment advice. I am not a financial advisor. I'm just a guy on the internet giving his opinions. You should not take what I say as advice. You should do your own diligence. It's your money. It's your responsibility. Uh, before I get started, uh, just want some more housekeeping. I know I'm working on trying to get the website back up, trying to get everything straightened out. I think uh, I've been talking to some people, so I'm thinking about just retooling the whole actionable intelligence alert um, experience. People have reached out to me, so I am having some discussions with some folks, so just bear with me. Uh, mostly, we'll be communicating through these videos. Uh, you can subscribe if you go down in the links below, if you're willing to, if you want to subscribe to the newsletter. Uh, there's subscription links below. Uh, also, um, if you want to sign up for my weekly free emails, I put out, usually try to do it once a week, but uh, sometimes it depends on my schedule. Um, you can sign up down below also, and you can get a flavor for what we talk about in general terms. I'm not going to give any of the good stuff away. That's for the newsletter, guys. But uh, uh, we do put out a free newsletter and um, once a week, an email, short email. We don't spam you. And uh, we try to share what's going on. You know, it's the actionable intelligence alert. Newsletter has been doing very well, obviously with the resource bull market that we're in that's been exacerbated by the recent events with the incursion of uh, Russian forces into Ukraine and the subsequent sanctions and all the knock-on effects from that. So we've been doing really good, uh, taking advantage of some opportunities. Um, so if you're interested in sharing in some of those picks, uh, we dive down. You know, I give a lot of the free stuff away, right? It's obvious, buy oil service stocks, buy Schlumberger, buy Helix, buy, you know, these are all the big caps, but I drill down into like the smaller caps, less, less known companies, ones with uh, more upside, shall we say. So uh, that's the advantage that you get with the subscription. Um, so link in the show notes below if you're interested in that. Um, so let's get into it for this week. Oh, one other thing. Uh, Please help us out if you do like the videos, if you enjoy what we're doing here, like, subscribe, share the videos. Um, if you're on the podcast listening, take the time to go to Spotify or Apple, iTunes, wherever, leave a review, mark, uh, you know, five stars, whatever. It helps, uh, it helps us. It really does. So we appreciate that if you uh, are inclined to do that. All right. So I tell this slide, geopolitics matters to investing. And so, as we've talked about even before the events that have happened with this um, invasion of, of Ukraine by Russia, um, we talked about in the past bias, emotion. I have, with this, regardless of the fact, take out of the equation your personal feelings on what has happened, whether you know the history of it, of the situation, whether you, uh, you know, who's right, who's wrong. The facts on the ground are, are, is, is that Russia is, has invaded 
Ukraine and has specified four or five objectives many times what it plans on doing. It doesn't matter that we like it, we don't like it, we want to go over there and fight, we want to do something, it does not matter as individual investors. What we need to do is we need to look at how things are and then what are the probabilities for various outcomes and then what are the effects on the investments. That sounds cold, that sounds callous, that sounds cynical. This is an investment video and blog and newsletter. That's what this is. And the adult person understands the world that they're in and adapts themselves to it. You know, I'm not going to get into my personal beliefs around philosophy and religion and politics. It's irrelevant. They act as biases on my thinking. The fact of the matter is, is that um, we have to look at this for what it is and what the, what the possible outcomes are. And so obviously the first thing to go in any kind of warfare is the truth. And so a lot of people in the West are being subjected to, and in Russia, are being subjected to a lot of propaganda. So it's, it's necessary to try to cut through that as best we can. And to do that, you have to take in other information sources. Uh, what we have a tendency to do since the internet's come around, you know, I, I always thought that the advent of the internet, it's such a great research tool and such a great tool for meeting people around the world and connecting. But, you know, I thought it was going to be like the, you know, like the um, uh, Gutenberg press or whatever. It was going to open up uh, and just free people's minds. And we were going to be able to get to the truth. And what I found is, you know, especially with social media, uh, is that people silo themselves and go for a lot of confirmation bias. And so what I want to do is kind of talk about what's happening here, just briefly, the military and then the geopolitical situation and how I think it's going to affect the things that we're investing and speculating in. Okay, so the fact of the matter here is, is that uh, the Russians are making progress. Um, there's a lot of narratives in the West. Well, they thought they were going to do this in three days or two weeks I, I've seen nothing except for Western people saying that Russians have never indicated how long this is going to take. What the Russians have said all along is that they are trying to achieve several objectives. The first objective that they said they were going to do because they did not, uh, they felt that uh, Ukraine as it was currently structured on February 24th uh, was moving towards NATO and EU membership. They were not going to allow that as they had said for many years. No one wanted to listen to them. No one wanted to negotiate. And so they uh, are going to deal with this militarily. As a Klaus Fitz would say, you know, the cliche that people use that uh, warfare is uh, an extension of politics by another means. It's actually the quote's different than that. But regardless, that's what's happening here. There's a, there is a political goal that the Russians are trying to achieve. Number one, demilitarization of Ukraine. Billions of dollars over the last 10, 15, 10 years or so, billions of dollars, equipment, training has been poured in from the West into the Ukrainian army to modernize it, to train it, to, to bring it to a level in some cases with some of its units that they are almost interchangeable with NATO units. Not the whole entire army, but portions of it. And uh, it's probably, I think someone said by numbers, it was one or two the largest armies armies in Europe. I think Russia, they flip-flop. So you, this is a real war. This isn't uh, 
you know, Grenada, you know, or this isn't Afghanistan or Iraq. This is a real, you know, history book warfare, combined arms warfare. And so um, what we're seeing on the ground is very simple. Um, the first day or so of the war, couple, the first week, couple few days, I mean, the Russians basically knocked out the most of the ability of the Ukrainians to uh, challenge in the air. So they've degraded, the Russians have degraded the command and control structure. They've been using standoff weapons, as we've seen over and over, cruise missiles, hypersonic missiles. They can hit anywhere in this country. They were, you know, where those, they blew up the mercenary base that was over here, you know, and the, those missiles were launched from the Caspian Sea way over here by Kazakhstan. So uh, there's all kinds of fuel dumps that have been taken out. I mean, if you want to see this stuff, you can see it. You can go on Telegram. You can find the channels. If you're watching Fox or CNN or BBC, you're not going to see this stuff. You have to go dig deep into the internet and Telegram. There's plenty of channels. If you just want to look at another perspective that may be slanted towards the Russian view, that's easy to get to, southfront.org or saker over the vineyard those are uh, obviously uh, considered more pro-russian in the fact of the saker it is pro-russian but you can get a different flavor of what's going on and so what you have here is is that you had the you know these are the two contested dpr and lpr donetsk and lugansk their militias moved you know there was nobody asked the question why did the ukrainians have a couple hundred thousand troops over here in eastern ukraine but that's for another discussion. So what has happened is, is that um, this is typical Russian Soviet military doctrine. DPR and LPR militias advanced on these contact lines that holds the Ukrainian army in place. Russian forces move in. You start creating, this, is, this map's not as intense as some of the other maps, but you create what they call in Russia a cauldron. You surround, you hold, this is static. They're held in place. Uh, because if they try to retreat or move out of their positions, the oncoming forces will engage them. You surround, and then you, a cauldron being a big pot, then you increase the heat on the cauldron. What do you do? Um, now you control, you have air superiority that the Russians established in the first couple of weeks. So they are flying three, four, 500 sorties a day, taking out targets of opportunity. I mean, they've pretty much already taken all, out a lot of the command and control all over the country, fuel depots, Armaments depots uh, have been taken out by standoff weapons. And now you have a situation now where you just have some attrition going on, right? There's no way that you can get supplies here. Uh, if you do, you're going to be harassed by uh, attack helicopters. And um, I mean, the Russians have satellites and drones just like the Ukrainians do. And the Americans are feeding them Ukrainians information. The problem is, is that uh, the Ukrainians have no ability at this point in time to concentrate forces, to communicate, to move. Uh, they're running out of supplies, ammunition, fuel, food. They're constantly being harassed. They're constantly being bombarded. And you have to remember that the Russian army is built around an artillery and rocket uh, artillery type uh, deal. This is what they do. They create, a, they create an, a holding. They try to hold a force in place, surround it into cauldron or Kessel, as the Germans called it during World War II on the Eastern Front. Now you have cut off the, the rears, and then you just turn up the heat by bombardments, 
starve them out basically until they surrender. So that's that's being achieved. You know, the idea here in Kiev, there, there's no intent. That's a lot of the Western people are saying, well, the intent was they were going to take Kiev in three days. Well, maybe they were, maybe they thought they would do the original dash in and maybe uh, everything would fall apart once they, you know, I give the Russians enough credit that they maybe had an initial plan, but they pivoted. You know, this is real war. That's what you have to do, right? This isn't uh, put 500,000 troops in Kuwait and Saudi Arabia and then bomb Iraq for, you know, three months straight, then roll in, declare victory. This is real warfare. So this is what happens. There's been many, many Ukrainian tactical victories here and there, but they have never once during this entire exercise been able to mount a legitimate and successful major counteroffensive to retake territory. They have no ability without having any type, without having air superiority, they cannot move. So they're stuck in these static defensive positions and getting back to Kiev, the idea was, you know, with the Black Sea fleet sitting off Odessa, with the incursion by Kiev, you know, that forces any other Ukrainian army um, components to be held in place. They can't go here and try to relieve because if they do, then this force would take Kiev. If they try to leave from Odessa and go here and relieve or move towards Kiev, then the Black Sea, then you'll have amphibious landings here. And so this is actually a brilliant strategy. You know, more terror. This is the 30th day of the war, and it, you know, uh, there's been a lot of criticism of the Russians. They probably deserve a lot of it. I'm not a military expert. I'm just telling you, just from my, I'm a hobbyist, military hobbyist. I've been interested in military history and tactics my entire life. I've war gamed my entire life. Do they make a lot of mistakes? Yeah, they've made mistakes. And like I said, the, the Ukrainians have gotten a lot of, you know, tactical victories, but the strategic plan, the outcome is going to happen. And so the first thing that the Russians were trying to achieve that they said today, at least the Ministry of Defense in their press briefing said, the first stage of the um, special operation, as they call it, is over, which is to, you know, basically demilitarize. So you, you have no, you have no ability of the Ukrainian army to act as an army in, in the sense that it's organized and can mount offensives. It cannot do that, it cannot resupply, they can't, these, these, you see this big cauldron being formed. There's all kinds of mini cauldrons being formed. And, you know, Mariupol, which is right here, which was an area where you had some, um, a lot of right wing type uh, people there. That's pretty been, that's in a mop up. Now that's over with. Is the city destroyed? Pretty much destroyed. The city is destroyed. You can see it on the videos. Um, Patrick Lancaster is a American guy. He's been living in the DPR for eight years. He's been following the battles. He has pretty good video footage. He's like one of the first actual, well, he's a, many people won't consider him a journalist, but he considers himself a journalist. And he's been, he's been in the, in the middle of this. So if you want to see what it looks like, you can see, see him. He talks to a lot of the, the real people and interviews them. Uh, so anyways, um, so the next point of this thing is to do what? The next thing is the as the Russians called, they probably this this is what causes people to get all upset emotionally. The denazification uh, thing, which is already starting to happen here, you know, your your Azov, your right right wing people, whether they're real Nazis or not, is beyond the scope of this. They're they're basically liquidated. They were told by midnight last night to surrender, or there would no no prisoners would be taken. So. Um, that is in process. Uh, people have been trying to escape. I've seen videos where Azov people and right sector people, 
dress up as women and try to sneak through the lines. That doesn't work. You'll see videos of people leaving Mariupol on the humanitarian corridors that the Russians set up, and any male of military age has to take his shirt off and get inspected for Nazi tattoos. If he has them, he's going to be interned and uh, interrogated. And if he's found to be an actual participant, he will be liquidated. Um, foreign fighters, mercenaries, whatever you want to call them, all these people that you see that they show on the news going over there, they are not actual recognized combatants. When they are caught, if they are caught, they will be liquidated. So this is what's happening. The political, now what will happen is, is these forces collapse here in the east, the Ukrainian forces, um, which they will. Uh, then you'll, you'll notice something that the Russians like to do. They will continue to negotiate while the fighting continues. That's something that the, we don't do in the West. So we're not used to seeing this. And like I said, because you're trying to achieve a political outcome. And the political outcome is basically um, the rest of the elements, which I'm going to describe. The recognition of Crimea, which is down here, as Russian territory, the whatever Ukrainian state is left to be there is going to recognize Crimea as Russian territory as it has been since the 17th century. The recognition of the DPR and LPR as autonomous regions as Ukraine signed on to on the Minsk II agreements in 2014 and has not uh, held up their side of it, that will happen. And so the pressure, the military actions will continue until these things happen. There's not gonna be relief. We've now had the president of the United States, the head of NATO, the head of the EU all say, many leaders in, in, in Europe have said the same thing. There's not gonna be a no-fly zone. There's not gonna be NATO or American troops here. So this is just a matter of time now. And so there's a view that, well, the Russians are gonna go all the way to you know, Western Ukraine. There's, there's no reason to do that. The Dnieper River, in case you don't know the geography, basically cuts the cuts the country in two. It basically dumps into the, this is the city where my wife lives right here in Kyrgyzstan. It's been under Russian control for three weeks. Um, it dumps in there and you're basically gonna see a swath like from Kharkiv, which is, let me see if I can find it on here, up here. You're gonna basically see this whole area and maybe to Odessa, I'm not sure yet if they're going to try to go all the way and connect with. This is a Transnistria, which is a Russian protectorate. There's Russian troops there. It's a area that broke away from Moldova. And you may see a land bridge all the way to there and confiscation of this territory. Basically, this is all going to be called Novo Russia. And now you have the Poles talking about doing an incursion because they have historical and territorial claims to Lvov here. And these areas that were part of the Polish-Lithuanian Confederation back in the day, they may move in there. We don't know. But basically, this is just a matter of time now. I, I would suggest to you by the end of April, the military portion of this will be completed, whatever that means. And then a political settlement will be made uh, to Russia's um, liking, if you will. There's nothing that the West is going to do. The West is not going to uh, risk a nuclear war over this. And uh, then we'll move on. So what are the repercussions? Well, we've talked about it, right? Um, you've seen the sanctions, which have been the worst sanctions ever put on a country in the history of the world. Uh, I was going to put up, I forgot to put it up, a uh, chart of the ruble. You know, when the sanctions came out, the Central Bank of Russia was sanctioned by the West. 
because you need to understand it's not the whole world. It's the Western countries, United States, Europe, Canada, but a lot of other countries are not joining in the sanctions. Uh, about half the world's not joining in the sanctions. Basically, the Southern Hemisphere, Southeast Asia, Central Asia, they want nothing to do with this. Um, they This is not, you know, as the, I was watching several talk shows in India and how a lot of the, you know, we have now our government, the U.S., going around and, and, and demanding that various countries do this, various countries do that, demanding China support sanctions or they're going to be sanctioned. I mean, we're really, the West is way over its skis. They are on a bullet train. And I think that a lot of sobering, sober, the, the night after the dopamine rush uh, of, of putting the Ukrainian flags up and being virtue signalings wearing off and the reality of what has happened uh, over something that really doesn't matter to most people in the world is setting in. And, and so how do you get off this train? So you've, you've put the worst sanctions. The sanctions on Russia are worse than the, the sanctions that were put on Nazi Germany during World War II. Even during World War II, the Central Bank of, of Germany was not sanctioned, if you can believe that. that. That's an actual true statement. So you've basically told Russia, we don't want you to be part of the West. You're not going to be part of the West. Uh, and so that's fine. They'll pivot to the East. Um, and uh, there'll be a recession in Russia, I'm quite sure, and, uh, but there's going to be economic pain for the entire world. And what I find interesting is this whole thing was um, avoidable. Uh, there was never any intention that the NATO was going to allow Ukraine into NATO. Um, there was really never any intention that they were going to let one of the most corrupt governments Russia's corrupt too, guys. It's not like, you know, Russia, yay, Ukraine, nay. Uh, these are two of the most corrupt places in the world, okay? There was no way. And so this little game that was being played on the Ukrainians, they were used as a pawn. And how many times, I said it during the Afghanistan situation, remember, if you recall, when we pulled out, we rug pulled uh, people on that. We rug pulled the Kurds in Iraq. We rug, we just continually rug pull. When are people going to, we're like Lucy with the football and, every, and the rest of the, these people are Charlie Browns. Do not trust the United States or the West. Okay. There was no way, first of all, there's, we could not let Ukraine into NATO because it had one of the rules to entry is you have no territorial disputes. So they had a territorial dispute before this war broke out. It was, you know, Crimea. So there was no way they were going to be allowed to go there. So they were they were being used as a way by the West and the neocons and the powers that be to antagonize Russia. And I don't think anybody thought Russia would retaliate. And they did. They went all in. And the thing you need to realize before you start, you know, it's interesting. I talked about it last week. Other people have brought it up. They're doing polls and 32 percent of the people polled said it's worth having a nuclear war over this. That people in the West don't know, people in the United States do not know what real war is, okay? And uh, I think that uh, with the exception of the neocons, a small group of neocons in the West, I think people at the Pentagon, people at the Federal Reserve, the Treasury, they're horrified of what has happened here. They're horrified. And these people all jumped, when I say these people, these politicians in all these countries in Western Europe, uh, who have tied themselves, by the way, to Russian energy, Russian agriculture for their very survival, jumped on this virtue, sig virtue signaling bullet train and now can't get off. 
you know, when Biden went to China or talked to Xi Jinping about this, he was trying to get Xi Jinping recently to um, influence Russia or get them to back off what they were doing in Ukraine. Um, he was told by Biden was told by Xi Jinping, the person that puts the bell on the tiger has to take the bell off. So that's what's happened. We've we've put the bell on Russia. We've sanctioned them. And now you, you there is no reverse gear. OK, you can't just back it off now that, that that's not how this works. It's not like, well, let's cut a deal. So now you have these crazy politicians in Western Europe saying things like, well, we'll replace the natural gas, the 40 percent of the natural gas we get from Russia in two years. This this is not going to happen. Uh, the infrastructure doesn't exist for these LNG terminals. The gas is five, 10 times more expensive. You'll be competing against all the other people that want liquefied natural gas, seaborne cargoes. It's just a big mess. And uh, a lot of people around the world now are going to pay the penalty. We're all going to have to go through a measure of pain now. And now we're going to see this globalist experience or globalist um, globalism, the, the point issues one that the Davos people wanted, it's crumbling before their eyes. The whole thing is crumbling because now you're going to have a bipolar or multipolar world, more less globalism, more nationalism, less trade, more trade barriers, more um, resource nationalism, which we're, I've, just, I've shown it for the last couple of weeks, it's getting more intense now. And that's inflationary. That's not deflationary. That is creates less economic growth, not more economic growth. And so, like I said before, we still can't even conceive, I don't think, of the uh, repercussions and knock-on effects of these poor decisions that were made by these people. And so here we go, we're gonna continue on. We're going, this is what I say, you've heard me say this before, this is what these people do. They're supposed to be so smart. They have all these high educations from Yale and Harvard and the various institutes in Europe that where they all congregate, but they have no common sense. They have no ability to understand, you know, they're stupid in the sense, not of intelligence, not even of book smart, but stupid in the sense of not understanding cause and effect, not understanding that if you do this, this is the reaction. And this is, if I throw a rock, you know, into the pond that the ripple effects go out. That's what I'm saying. So here we have, you know, Gavin Newsom here in, we have, you know, today, uh, Brent closed at $120 a barrel. Um, we're in the shoulder season, folks. We're not even into the summer driving season yet, okay? Um, I see no supply response happening anywhere. And, you know, we're going to probably see, I don't know, like I said before, inflation adjusted all time high oil price would be $220 a barrel. I can see it happening. I can see it happening. We're definitely going to be breaking the nominal high this summer. We'll go over $150 a barrel this summer. I have no doubt. And that still wouldn't be an all-time high inflation adjusted. You'd have to go to over $200 a barrel. Is that possible? I know at some point, the world economy breaks, right? Um, especially when I talk to you and show you the, the slide on diesel. It's diesel's going straight up on a rocket ship, which, you know, the whole world is based on diesel fuel uh, for transportation of goods and construction and all kinds of things. But we'll get to that. But here's, you know, we make these bad decisions. We set ourselves up, uh, you know, you know, two years ago, we had record oil production in this country and we had gas prices down. We had peace in the world. And look what we have now. One bad decision after another, creating more and more chaos. 
okay? And then being exacerbated by another dumb decision on top of the previous dumb decision. This is not, this is not indicative to me of a master plan to take over the world. This is, this is a bunch of people that don't know what they're doing, okay? Hoping something sticks. You know, we had Boris Johnson now running over to Saudi Arabia and begging for more oil and being told by the Saudis, no, we're not pumping any more oil. Running around like the administration was, our administration going to Iran and Venezuela. Is that part of the master plan to take over the world, going around and begging these uh, dictatorships for more oil? And in the meantime, we're not seeing anything here in the U.S., but here's what we're seeing. Breaking, Gavin Newsom unveils gas relief package. $400 rebate per registered car, max two cars. Payments could start in July. $750 million for three months free public trans transit. Up to $600 million to pause part of diesel sales tax for one year. $523 million to pause inflation adjustment to gas, diesel, and excise taxes. And so, as I've said before, you know, price, when you have limited supply, price will ration. Price the price will go up and the and the person or the people or the industry or whatever that needs the fuel the most will pay the highest price and the frivolous uses will get tamped down right from demand destruction but if you encourage people by giving them more money to go out and buy commodities that are in short supply you're going to exacerbate the price increase you're not going to get the demand destruction that helps cure the high prices but it's not just in california um, here we go. Putting fuel on an already hot fire hasn't worked in the past as a strategy to cool the situation. Quebec province and Canada hand out $500 payments to residents to, to counter inflation via National Post. And then they have a clown because this is clown world, right? Um, we politicians create these problems and then we make more dumb decisions because we don't want to get blamed, right? The, the main job of a politician isn't to kiss your life and make it better or solve your problems. It's to get reelected. And so when uh, oil goes to 150 or $200 a barrel this year or next year and gasoline's $8 or $10 a gallon, uh, there will be repercussions at the ballot box. And they know this. So this is why you're seeing these dumb decisions, which won't work, by the way. Europe also giving stimmies. This is from Shy Girl. Here comes the stimmy. EU companies affected by sanctions against Russia over its invasion of Ukraine can get up to 400,000 euros in state aid, European Commission document seen. And where are they actually getting all this money for all these stimmies and aid? All these places are bankrupt. So again, we, we you know, I guess, I guess the, the, the people that really need it in the food industries are getting stiff. They can only get 35,000 euros. Right. So the politicians in the EU went, jumped on this train that the, that Britain and the U.S. basically instigated the Germans. You know, the weak leadership in Germany is just astounding. Um, and, you know, I've heard like some commentators say, well, this whole episode is going to strengthen Europe. No, it's not. This whole episode is going to lead to the destruction of the EU, which I was predicting anyways. OK, that's what it's going to lead to. Um, there's no way. Uh, with the fuel problems we're going to have, food problems, this kind of nonsense that this is going to hold. Oh, they're going to increase their military budgets. No one in Europe wants to serve in the military. They certainly don't want to be forward deployed for the potential of getting in a war with, with Russia. It's stupid. And something you need to remember about this whole thing that I think is being missed by most people in the West. I tried to make the point earlier, but I, my mind got, uh, it's late in the day. I'm doing this on Friday night to get it to you guys Saturday morning. The Russian people have had ex ex twice before in their history 
have had existential threats to their civilization and to their lives. During the invasion by Napoleon, during the Napoleonic Wars, and by Germany during World War II. They were, especially the recent history of the German invasion, when I say existential threat, that means total war, total destruction of one of the combatants. If you look at what happened when Germany invaded the Soviet Union, it was total war um, on the population. Uh, I mean, depending on the estimates, you want to believe 25 to 30 million people dying in the Soviet Union. Okay. Um, total, total mobilization of the entire nation for one, one goal and one goal only, the, the expulsion and destruction of Germany. Okay. That's what happened. And then when they got into Germany, what happened there? The total destruction of that, of that country. I mean, you literally had fanatics, SS fanatics, and they were foreign volunteers, by the way, the, some of the last uh, platoons and companies fighting at the Reichstag during the Battle of Berlin were from France, by the way, uh, and foreign volunteers. So they literally had to go building by building, house by house. I mean, they celebrate this every May 8th in Russia. They'll have the parade again this year, I'm quite sure. And it's victory over European fascism. They remember this. And so we as the United States do not have that burned into our DNA. And so Putin, you need to understand this. I can't get into this in this video, but you know, this is how they look at things in Russia. It's not the same experience you have as an American or necessarily as a Western European. The history of Russia goes back to even before, you know, eighth and ninth century. They've always had strong men in place. This is part of the also because of the influence of being invaded by the Mongols and all stuff. And so when Putin is the leader of Russia and people say, well, it's got to be made up that he has 70 or 80% approval. It's not made up. This is in the DNA. And so the Russian people believe this, the majority of them and their leadership believes that this situation is an existential threat to their survival. Now, you, you may think that's silly. You may scoff at it. That's just a propaganda. That's just them saying that to justify. That's how they think. And see, that's part of the problem is not looking at the way the other party looks at things. You look at it from your perspective, and then you make decisions based on your perspective, and then you find out that that's not accurate, and then you find that you make bad decisions. So I got off on a tangent a little bit, but Europe is not, the European Union is not a real thing. You have 30 different countries there with 30 different cultures, languages. This, 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 this situation, I think, has a good chance of really ripping the EU apart long term, but we'll see. So going on here, here's, you know, I talked about this, what's going to happen with oil prices. Here is U.S. crude storage with SPR. You know, here's your, here's your five-year average in here. Um, then here's 2018 to 2021. Here's 20, 2022. There's no demand destruction going on right now. We have, this is not good. And we're, like I said, we're in the shoulder season. We should be building inventories in preparation for refineries coming out of turnaround season and cranking up for the summer driving season. So what I suggest is going to happen is that we are going to see, well, I mean, I, I think it's really, it, it's possible we could see, you know, the old highs, nominal highs get breached this year. And then depending on what happens, we could we could make all time new highs in 2023. But like I said, I think I would suggest to you that at some point 
these high energy prices are going to break the economy. I don't think it's going to happen at 100 or $120 a barrel, but there is a number out there that this no economy can can operate uh, at uh, where uh, you know if gas is eight or ten dollars a gallon. I'm sorry, the 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 the, the United States economy is based on a commuting society. Nobody walks anywhere. Everybody's in a vehicle, commuting to work, commuting to the store, products coming by truck. Um, it just will not be able to tolerate that kind of oil price. So this is what I'm basing on. People say, well, when are you gonna sell? Well, this is my one of my key indicators. As long as uh, crude storage is going down, uh, the price is gonna go up. It's just that simple. It's not hard to understand. So we wanna see a sustained you know, turn on this and then, Inventories climbing, storage climbing. We're not seeing that. You know, the price of crude and refined products are screaming at the market, produce more hydrocarbons. And so when it rains, it pours, right? Saudi Arabia, the Saudis say, quote, no longer responsible for oil market stability. You know, for many, many decades, since I've been alive, at least, since I was a kid, or since the Arab oil embargoes, when everything stabilized, you know, OPEC had this view that they were going to balance the supply and demand of oil such that the oil price was high enough to, to provide uh, the necessary funds for them to um, pay off their populations and do their social welfare and everything, but not too high or not high enough where demand would be choked off because of uh, high energy prices. And so what they're saying now is, is that they're no longer we're going to be responsible. And, and, and let's for all for all intents and purposes, we say OPEC, we are talking about Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is the largest producer in OPEC. And uh, they, they call the shots. They have the most weight. And so here's the article from Reuters. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Saudi Arabia, the world's largest exporter of crude, said, said March 21st, it no longer has, quote, responsibility for any shortage in oil supplies to global markets in light of the attacks on its oil facilities, according to a statement from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs reported by the official Saudi press agency. These are the attacks from Yemen. Uh, the Saudis have been at war with the uh, Iranian-backed uh, people there in Yemen, and, and these people have been launching missiles at their oil facilities, but they have, they've had ongoing attacks in their oil facilities. I think this is an excuse. I think this is an excuse the Saudis are using because they don't have the spare capacity that everybody said they did, that the pointy shoes that the IEA said, oh, they have five or six million barrels. OPEC has five or six million barrels of spare capacity. Don't worry. I don't think there is any spare capacity. And that's something that several analysts that have gotten this right have been saying, okay? And I think this is an excuse. Oh, all of a sudden now, they've been throwing rockets uh, from Yemen for, you know, five to seven years. I mean, you remember a couple of years ago, they hit a facility and oil prices didn't even move. I think this is a convenient excuse to finally say that, well, you know, we're not going to be responsible for, you know, we're being attacked all the time. Okay. Riyadh has traditionally maintained a 2 million barrel a day spare capacity buffer, which is has used to request, which it has used on request to help maintain global market stability during supply shocks, such as the Gulf War in the early 1990s or the US invasion of Iraq in 2003. However, Riyadh has so far refused to comply with the international pressure to release more oil or deviate from OPEC plus deal with Russia on production since international sanctions were imposed on Kremlin. And this goes back to the realignment of the world. Okay, 
Um, since we've had this administration, new administration in place, it has alienated all these people. And I think you know, I have several things possibly going on here. The alienation of some of these people that were, well, I hate to use the word allies, but shall we say they were, we were in a relationship because it was mutually beneficial. That's one aspect of it. And the other aspect is I just don't think they have the spare capacity that they used to have. Um, that's just, and this is a convenient excuse to, you know, announce to the world that, hey, you're on your own, basically. Here's the CEO of Vital, which is a major oil uh, trading company. What do they say? Expect a demand gap for oil to widen. Here's Josh Young, um, Bison Interests, very good analyst you should follow. Um, he's been one of the main guys that's been talking about the lack of spare capacity, not just in OPEC, but the entire world. And I think he's gotten it right. But there's a tweet he put out, Vital CEO says, given limited investment in oil production, expect a, quote, demand gap to widen over the next few years. Sounds like something Bison Interest has been saying. Okay, demand is recovering faster supply. This is from a, uh, uh, you know, while oil demand has been recovering to its pre-pandemic long-term trend, there hasn't been enough supply recovery to meet it. Deficits may worsen in 2022. It's not they're going to may worsen, they're going to worsen. Price is going to go up. So here's what I was talking about diesel. So here's back to 1995 to current. Price of diesel, U.S. weekly retail on highway diesel price, U.S. per gallon, over $5 a gallon. Um, this is the last peak during 2008 when we had the uh, great financial crisis and we peaked at it about, you know, 475 a gallon. We've rocketed past there. Okay. We do not have enough diesel. I'm looking at places around Texas where I've seen diesel, you know, high fours over $5 a gallon. And so what does this mean? Like I said earlier, diesel is basically the lifeblood of the economy. All of your trucking, everything's trucked here in the U.S., so everything is, the price goes up, right? When you double the price of diesel, you double the transportation costs. You, that's exacerbated by trucker shortages. I mean, this whole thing's a big mess. It's going to get worse. And that's why, you know, we're going to have this persistent inflation. I think we've quit, talked, quit talking about um, uh, inflation as being transitory, right? Uh, it's pretty sticky. And so you add jet fuel to this, right? Because jet fuel is not necessarily diesel, but it's close to it. It's a distillate also, as is um, diesel. And, you know, you're going to add jet fuel supply as the summer comes, summer travel season and travel recovers. We've got a big mess here. The good thing is, is if you own uh, companies that are refiners, the crack spreads on a barrel of oil are at record highs too, I believe, or close to. Or if you own a company like Suncor in Canada, which produces relatively cheap crude in its oil sands and then refines it in its own refineries, uh, you get a double whammy. So there's always ways to take advantage of this, right? But I wanted to show you this because trucking, I mean, construction equipment, right? All this stuff runs on diesel. And, you know, look at this. this I mean, this is not going to last. Obviously, it's not going to go here and stay here. We're going, we're going to break this economy. These high prices are going to break the economy eventually. I don't know when it's going to happen. I don't know how much the economy could absorb. It was already weak. And these prices are just going to kill things. And if you think things are going to get cheaper, they're not. And so we already had prices creeping up. And then we had this bad decision of not working with 
Russia to resolve this issue before it turned into an invasion, which then resulted in massive sanctions on a country that produces things that the world needs. The Russians don't really need the rest of the world, okay? Yes, uh, their central bank is sanctioned. They can get around that. Uh, they won't get parts for their Boeing and Airbus planes. That'll be a problem eventually. Um, but what's really going to happen? Like I said, the ruble crashed originally. They recovered 66% of the losses it had. The sanctions aren't going to work. And in the meantime, you know, we see this blast off in diesel prices. It's crazy. You know, oil's fungible, guys. It's not like, you know, we can just isolate ourselves from this stuff. They can isolate themselves. They're willing to don't underestimate the Russian Russian people's ability to endure and sacrifice. That's not the same with the US people that I've seen or Europeans. So here we go. History does not repeat, but it rhymes. Last time US oil inventories were this low, prices were on their way to $145 a barrel. That's where we're heading now. Look where we're at. Uh, we're blowing right through those. Uh, remember, I showed you the chart earlier of 2008 when we, last time we had record high oil prices. We're blasting right through that, guys. We do not have enough oil supply. We're not making the. I've been talking about this for two years. You know, we were on this trajectory regardless of what happened here with this invasion. Yeah, I thought it would play out over two years, three years. It's just got accelerated into three months or three weeks. Um, you put these artificial supply constraints on the world economy and prices go through the roof. Supply is just crashing of, 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 of oil. So you're going to see, and until this turns around, the price is going to keep going up until the economy breaks, until demand is curtailed by price. And so you're not seeing that response. You know, we talked about the Saudis not uh, having enough spare capacity but with record, well, not record, but with oil prices where they are, look at where the Middle Eastern rig count is. It's not really climbing. It's climbed a little bit from the lows and last um, uh, from the lows from the coronavirus crash, but it's not going up massively. There's no supply response. That's great. So that's not encouraging. Where's that supply going to come from if the Middle East is just full of oil? And so, again, we talk about stupid decisions, right? Stupidity, the inability to associate cause and effect, to understand how your decision that you make today, how it plays out or affects tomorrow or a year or two in the future or 10 years in the future. And so ING Bank, uh, which is a Dutch bank, will no longer finance new oil and gas projects. ING Group NV will no longer finance new oil and gas projects, its energy chief said, becoming the biggest bank yet to commit to such a step in the fight against climate change. Okay, this is what's gonna rip the EU apart. Um, I cannot believe that they're still on this climate change tip. They're gonna just, I mean, it's like, if you wanna see what a 40, what an airplane in a spin looks like in a out of control spin and stall, uh, that's going to crash. This watch the EU. A lot of bad decisions were made a long time ago that set the course. Then they got on this runaway train with the U.S. and Great Britain against Russia. And how do you get off now? There's no reverse gear. And this is exacerbated by this climate change nonsense. The move by the Dutch financial services firm raises pressure on peers to heed a call by the International Energy Agency, another globalist pointy shoe, waste of time organization, 
for a halt to funding for new fossil fuel projects to help cap global warming at no more than, you know, people are, tens of millions of people are going to be on the hook to possibly starve this year. And these idiots are talking about climate change. I mean, the, the, the wake up call when it comes, the two by four upside the head, the attention getter boot in butt is going to be something to watch. Quote, this is from the bank uh, CEO or the energy uh, uh, guy there, uh, head of the energy chief. Decarbonization of the energy system is of almost existential importance, but so is affordable energy and reliable supply of energy. Yep. And so when you banned uh, or when you are, are going to try to get off Russian gas and oil, good luck with that. This is just more bad decisions being heaped on bad decisions. And so that's what we need to do as a speculator. We take advantage of the stupid and relieve him of his money. You know, it's a crime. I think it was, uh, what was the name of that poker player? I can't remember. Uh, you know, you've heard all these things, you know, if you don't, it's a crime to let a sucker keep his money. Uh, it really is. And these people are the biggest suckers in the world. This is, these are the dumbest people and they have the most, they're the highest credentialed and most educated people in the world. And they are making bad decision after bad decision. And that's what a speculator does, right? We're there to take the other side of the bet to provide the liquidity. And then we get the payoff when we say, what is the premise that is wrong? And then we bet against it. And so if you think EV, this is what I get a kick out of. You've heard me say it before. Heads we win, tails we win more. You've heard me say, if you don't mine it or grow it, you don't have it. This is a perfect example. So EVs, right? Just buy an EV. That's what Jennifer Granham said, the energy secretary here, and just with a big smirk on her face. Well, here's what happens when you don't invest enough in uh, capacity for um, various metals. Here's EV battery materials prices go down until they don't. And so what's happened recently? The price of all this stuff is now going up. So guess what happens to the price of the EV batteries, the major component of these electric vehicles? It goes up. All of them, the labor, the all of I mean, you can just look at this. OK, this is this is hilarious to watch. OK, um, Moore's law does not apply to chemistry and batteries are chemistry technology. They're not microelectronics. And this is the, another mistake that a lot of people made. Well, the price will just go down. Yes, the price did go down for the last 10 or 15 years because we've been in a, bull, a bear market for resources. So prices have been going down. Now they're going up. And guess what? The price of EV batteries, that's not going to solve your problem, folks. And like we said, we don't care. We don't care what the outcome is because heads we win, tails we win more. And so I've been talking about a food crisis going back before over a year ago, you know, I had uh, Sean Hackett on, I got some bad feedback on that, you know, when I was talking about where I thought the earth was going to get cooler, not warmer, that we were going to have less and smaller crop yields over time or the potential that we had had 10 years of optimum growing conditions and that we were due for a span of bad weather. And now we've seen that even before all this stuff happened with the invasion, right? I was bullish on agriculture well before any of this happened. And then with this incursion where we have the number five and number number one wheat exporter invading the number five wheat exporter, I mean, you're guaranteed to have wheat, uh, grain shortages. 
you know, I didn't realize this, but I believe in the top five also is Kazakhstan, which is another Russia aligned country, if you will. And so if Europe and the rest of these countries don't want Russia's wheat, guess where it's going to go? It'll go to India, it will go to China, it will go to other places. Wheat is fungible. There will be, I don't know, I mean, I don't know how you're going to plant somebody. I heard an analyst, I was listening to a podcast, somebody said, well, they could probably still plant something in Ukraine. Well, well how are you going to plant? The you're in an actual combat zone. How are you going to get the materials out there? How are you going to get the tractors in the field? I guess here and there you could, but you're not going to have the 100 million tons of, of, of grain grown that you had last year. You're not going to have the sunflower oil that's needed around the world as a cooking oil to replace the palm oil because you have export uh, bans in Indonesian palm oil. You see all this stuff interacts and no one looks at it. And so I've been talking about food shortages for the last several weeks that's in the bag. I've been talking about food being an issue since this video series started. I started this channel and I talked about Macron last year, President Macron in France saying there was going to be uh, food shortages in the world. And now we have President Biden after he went to visit with the EU and or the NATO folks. Here's the headline from the New York Post. Biden warns of global food shortages as Russia-Ukraine war upends wheat supplies. Mm -hmm. That's terrific. It's in the bag. It's going to happen now. It's nothing can be done about it. And all we had to do this is all because a handful of neocons in the in the NATO and in the US have a visceral hate for Russia that no one wanted to sit down. They knew they were never going to let Ukraine in NATO. Why didn't they just issue a document and sign a document saying that and we wouldn't have had this incursion? And now you have the president of the United States. This is the New York Post. This is some ridiculous uh, internet uh, channel. March 24th, Biden warns of global food shortages. What are you going to do about it, Mr. President? You know, Madeleine Albright, that demon passed away this week. She was the one during the Iraq war when it was suggested to her that because of the sanctions on Iraq, a half million children in Iraq could possibly die because of the sanctions. And she very coldly and callously responded, we think it's worth it. We think it's worth it. <clears throat> Lentils have doubled in the last year. This is a very important food source. Uh, India has banned the export of this already. As many countries around the world start banning exports of foodstuffs because now everybody's getting worried that there's going to be a food shortage, which there is. And we've seen the U.S. lentil prices have doubled in the last year. I don't know what, you know, I had some falafel last week. Uh, I think it was made from lentils, uh, but uh, I've had lentil soup, uh, but evidently this is a very important food stuff for many people around the world. And this is just piece of this is just data point after data point after data point. And we haven't even gotten into the real shortages yet, because this is what happens, right? When you think there's going to be a shortage, what's the instinct to do? Start hoarding, start buying, start restricting exports. The price goes up. Terrific. Hope it was worth it. Here we go. Food hoarding begins. Here's a tweet. Nations around the world are waking up to the threat of a global food crisis, taking steps to secure their own supplies. Yep. You know, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'll tell you what I'm doing. Um, I'm not going crazy buying stuff, but there are sources you can go on the internet where you can buy bulk or you can go to Costco 
you know, it doesn't, it might be worthwhile to lay in some foodstuffs. Or if you are going to buy stuff in bulk, even toilet paper, stuff like that, soap, because we're going to have massive inflation. Uh, I used to pick on my wife. She used to do stuff like that. We have a pantry in our garage that she, uh, we have a, probably enough, I don't know, we've got enough toilet paper, soap, shampoo, toothpaste to last probably two or three, four years. I don't know. It's a lot. And I was used to get on her about it, but it makes sense now, right? I mean, um, and this food thing is going to be a situation. I'm not suggesting that people in the West are going to starve. You're just going to pay more. You'll have access to it because you're able to pay. Remember, we talked about how price rations, but the problem is, is that, you know, it's not possible for a country like Egypt to support a population of 100 million people without importing most of its grain. And it's not going to be able to do that. So what's the situation? It's, you know, Tunisia is in that situation. Uh, many of the uh, sub-Saharan uh, African countries are in that position. And so they would simply won't, they'll just be outbid by us and people in Western Europe. But we're going to see inflation go through the roof. And it didn't have to happen like this. This is what I'm trying to say. But it doesn't matter. Nothing can be changed about it now. We're not in power. We don't have the influence on the pointy shoes. We don't make the, dis what we need to do is look at things the way they are. And this is what's happening, folks. And fertilizer stocks have went through the roof. Um, I think, you know, if just even to be an agricultural bull, just investing in oil is sufficient. Why? Because if you think about it, industrial scale agriculture is nothing but the conversion of hydrocarbons into food. If you think about it, if you really break it down, that's what it is whether it's the nitrogen that goes into the fertilizers, all the fuel that's used, your basic pesticides, all this stuff is, comes from hydrocarbons, oil and natural gas. So I think that if you, if you really wanna break it down and make it easy, if you're investing in energy, you're basically covering all, the, all your bases. So, uh, you know, but I, you know, if you have the ability to prepay utility bills or something or lock in a price, I would consider doing that. I would consider, you know, getting a couple of five gallon pails and filling it up with some dry beans. You can get those big sacks of rice at Costco. I think you should go on the internet and learn how to keep it, the humidity from attacking and how you do long-term storage. But uh, it may be <clears throat> something if you eat rice anyways, why not buy it now? Okay, um, so something to think about. It's, <clears throat> I've mentioned this before, you know, going in with a couple of friends or somebody that lives and has a pasture, get a couple of cows, beef cows, uh, or steers and raise them and then, you know, divide it up, things like that. Something to think about, because I think that uh, you're going to do yourself a favor if you think that way. All right, guys, that's it for this week. Like I said, uh, you know, I'm not going to get into my personal views. A lot of people, when I make these videos, when I start talking about this, it's very emotional for people. Focus on these situations around the resources, the second order effects. We cannot undo what's been done. What has happened has happened, okay? And so we need to look at what's going, what are the probabilities now? What are the probabilities of the various outcomes? And that's what we're looking at. I mean, it's in the bag that we're gonna have higher energy prices. It's in the bag that we're gonna have higher food prices. It's in the bag that we're gonna have higher inflation. So what do we do? What can we do as investors and speculators? Because your obligation is really to take care of yourself and your family. You cannot take care of the entire world. You're not running the world. And so 
uh, is distasteful. Uh, you know, somebody said one in one of the comments on one of these videos, and I talked about the food situation. I don't really feel good about, you know, taking advantage. You're not taking advantage. You didn't cause the problem. And somebody has to rebuild this thing and, 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 and come back from it. And those with the capital that have the right mindset, that's the people that will be able to do it. That you have an obligation to take care of your own and before you fix the entire world. Don't forget that. That's my view. That's my opinion. Take it or leave it. All right, guys, that's it for this week. Uh, I hope you got something out of this. It's, uh, it's really interesting times. Chaos equals cash. That's what we used to say in the refinery during the turnarounds. We'd make fun of the management and stuff, and they were making good decisions, but we didn't care because we were hourly workers. Chaos equals cash, and that's kind of the situation here. All right, guys, appreciate you. Talk to you next week.